0: Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Please turn to your Bibles or look inside your bulletin to follow along. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Morning. Um, I'd like to begin by. Okay. Uh, I'd like to begin by introducing or welcoming Eddie and Helen. Uh, if you could just throw your hands up in the air, so we can just recognize you, newcomers, back there. Eddie and Helen and their parents of Josh, and so a welcome to our church. Glad that you can join us for service. Give a warm welcome to them. I get the privilege to be able to preach the next three weeks while Pastor Paul's on sabbatical. And uh, I get that privilege, but I guess you guys will be the ones suffering. (laughs) In my series, I will be preaching through the book of Philippians. Why? Because I love it. I love Philippians. I love it so much that I committed a summer with a few other brothers and sisters at this church to memorizing all of Philippians. I was also encouraged to hear that even some college students, uh, they came to me and uh, they told me they were memorizing a book in the Scripture, and I immediately guessed, is it Philippians? And they said, yes, and I was deeply encouraged by that. It's 104 verses that simply just drip with doctrinal truths and practical encouragement. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible because it gives us clear emphasis as Christians on how we should view Christ and how we should think about Christ, how we should exalt Christ. Let me begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be able to preach your word. I pray that you bless any ears that hear the proclamation of your truth, but not only that, I pray that you bless me as I go through the series. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The main point of today's passage is we must stand firm in union against suffering and persecution by living a life worthy of the gospel, and we'll go through it in three points, a life worthy of the gospel, the union of Christians, and not being frightened against opposition. The first point, a life worthy of the gospel. We're beginning this series a little further down in chapter 1 of Philippians, so I'm going to give you a quick summary of the beginning of Philippians chapter 1. The backdrop is this. Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians, and he's giving them encouragements, And he's challenging them to stand firm as Christians. Even if it may come to the cost of their own lives. And this is the kicker. He's writing these letters in jail. That just hits different. Because the readers of these letters know that Apostle Paul, he practices what he preaches. And he's calling his followers to do the same. And this is where our passage enters. He is calling Christians to live a life worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? One thing we can definitely deduce from this is that there are certain standards a Christian should live by. There are certain morals, ethical character characteristics that Christians should have. There are certain expectations on how Christians should think, act, and speak. So if you are a confessing Christian but you haven't been to church for three months, maybe, maybe you aren't living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you are a confessing Christian, but do not read your word and pray to this God that saved you, maybe you are not living in a manner worthy the gospel. If you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior but you haven't served the church in 10 years, then maybe you're not living in a manner worthy of the gospel. To help better understand what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, it might be good to translate this verse in this way. Most scholars and commentators think this is a better translation. The translation is this, live as citizens of the gospel. Now, you may wonder, well, that actually sounds more confusing. Why why would you translate that? way? Well, back then, citizenship was everything. See, a lot of us who are U.S. citizens, we take it for granted our citizenship. But anyone who is living in the United States and is not a U.S. citizen knows the value of citizenship. They know the value. They know the value. I know people who could not get jobs because they weren't U.S. citizens. I know people that couldn't go to school because they weren't U.S. citizens. You can't get the benefits of the United States if you're not a citizen, sh- citizen of the United States. So those who are not citizens know the value of citizenship. Back then, it was the same. See, I believe the United States is the greatest country of all time, ever. Back then, the Roman Empire was the best country to live in, the best nation. Everyone coveted Roman citizenship. They all wanted it because it came with many, many benefits, One thing that we can see, you know, for instance, Apostle Paul in Acts was beaten and thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. A little later, you see that the jailers, they start to tremble because it was soon realized that Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. See, why would they tremble? Because as a Roman citizen, you were right, you had the right to a fair trial. You can't just be simply beaten and thrown in jail for no reason so they knew that the romans the roman soldiers knew the guards knew that they did something illegal to a roman citizen you have the protection as a citizen you get a lot of benefits being a citizen in the roman empire but being a citizen you have some civil duties there are two things every citizen needed to do The first thing is, you had to pay taxes. You had to pay taxes. The second thing is, if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, you must pledge allegiance to Caesar. You must pledge allegiance to Caesar. When the Apostle Paul tells... His followers in the Philippines, the Philippines, the Philippines, not the Philippines. I have the the, the missions presentation. In my, they're different places, guys. Completely different places. What he's essentially telling them to do, when he says "live as citizens of the gospel," what he's doing is this: he is telling them, "You once who pledge allegiance to Caesar." Now I want you to pledge your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone pledged allegiance to anyone else but Caesar, it was considered treason and you were thrown in jail. Guess why Apostle Paul is in jail? Because he was preaching a gospel that made people pledge allegiance to something else other than Caesar, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he's telling these people, hey, live as citizens of the gospel, what he's telling them to do is this, commit treason. There are times you must commit treason in order to live a life worthy of the gospel that you have. And it comes at the risk of possibly being thrown in jail, and even being killed. But as a citizen of any nation, you have certain civil duties. And this is what Apostle Paul is calling them to do. As Christians, you must live as Christians. Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, a lot of you guys might be too young To know who that is but in my time he was the man he was the man he was a terminator he was I I guess today's equivalent might be the rock okay the rock I don't but before Arnold Schwarzenegger was a movie star he was a world-class bodybuilder he was the best everyone looked up to him even today if you lift You know this name, you know the prestige of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And this is what he says. He says, if you wanna be a champion, you gotta be a champion. What does that mean? Arnold Schwarzenegger is saying, if you wanna be a champion, you gotta act like a champion. You gotta train like a champion. You gotta eat like a champion. You gotta think like a champion. He knew that if you wanted to be a champion, you already had to be a champion. Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. (laughs) Some of you guys might know this because you guys might get similar uh, recommendations on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. But I saw this as as something on YouTube and I I do not know why. YouTube still sends me clips and highlights of basketball because I suck at basketball. I do not know why they keep sending, but I keep watching them. I watch them all. I love it. Maybe deep inside, I really want to be a baller. But in one of these, like, shorts that popped up, it was an interview of Coach Handy, one of uh, Kobe Bryant's coaches. And he asked Kobe Bryant, you guys don't know, he's known for his killer instinct. Um, He asked Kobe Bryant, why are you such a jerk? (laughs) If you know the short, you know he doesn't say the word jerk. There's another word he uses. Uh, I cannot say it here. But he asked him, why are you such a jerk? Kobe Bryant responds and says, I'm not a jerk. I'm not a jerk. The reason why I don't pass the ball to certain members on the team is because I practice with them every single day. And these people, they come in a little early, five, ten minutes early to practice, and right when practice ends, they're gone. All the while, I'm here, 4 a.m., already having a full practice session, and then we have our team practice, and after the team practice, take a break and have my own practice again. I'm not a jerk. I don't pass them the ball, not because I'm a jerk. I don't pass them the ball because they didn't earn it. They don't earn it. What Apostle Paul is saying is this. If you want to be a Christian, you got to be a Christian. You got to act like a Christian. You got to think like a Christian. Growing up, one of the most influential people in my life was a man named, I called him Pastor Oscar. There was a time when I literally could remember every single sermon he ever preached, at least to me. And I found his sermons to be so impactful in my life, not only because of the things that he was teaching but mostly because of who he was. Pastor Oscar would tell us something similar as I'm telling you now. As a Christian, you must live a life worthy of the gospel. And then later he will show us scars in his head that he has because as a full-time missionary, he went to He would go to the most unreached places in the world. People who have never heard the gospel. And one time when he went to a village, preached the gospel, they literally chased him out with hatchets. And he shows the place where the hatchet had hit him and him narrowly escaping with his life. There was a time where I saw him, he's over six feet tall. And I saw him under like 120 pounds. Skinny, because he had contracted a disease on one of his missions trips. Near death, he was in the hospital. We all thought he was going to die. The Lord didn't take him. Now, if someone like that tells you, you should live a life worthy of the gospel, because Jesus Christ saved you, and he is your Lord, that just hits different. Hits different. Much like when these readers heard and read from Apostle Paul, knowing that he is living the life worthy of the gospel is why he is in jail, it hit different for them. Our second point the union of Christians. See, when we read this passage, a lot of us think the main point of this passage is Apostle Paul telling us to live a life worthy of the gospel. But actually, the main point, surprisingly, is not that. The main point of this passage is actually to stand in unison against the enemy. Apostle Paul is not simply commanding the Philippian church to live up to a certain standard just because it's a good thing to do. But rather, he is calling them to do that because he understood if you don't do that, you will not be able to stand firm together when the opposition comes to you. He understood that if you live a life, if a community lives a life In the manner worthy of the gospel, as citizens of the gospel, he understood that by natural consequence, you will come in one mind, in unity, to be able to stand against any opposition. He understood that. See, it's not enough just to have similar theology, but you actually need to live out the gospel You can't just confess it. You have to live it. You have to live it. Simply put, Scripture says faith without deeds is dead faith. But deeds without faith, is called legalism. You got to have both. You have to have both. When you subscribe to something, you can't simply just say it. You have to live it. Living out your confession completes it. It completes it. It makes it more of a reality for yourself and for others. Between the time uh, I became, I went to seminary and I worked full time. I took a, a small break. Uh, I did a missions missions training and a missions trip for six months between that time. <clears throat> Uh, after I worked, decided, okay, it's time, I, I want to go, I, I need something to happen, God's calling me. So I decided to do a thing called YWAM. <clears throat> Pastor Paul hated it. If you guys know anything about why, he hated it. And I looked at him and said, don't worry, you taught me, well, I'll, I'll survive. I'll survive. <clears throat> if you guys don't know, uh, YWAM, the headquarters is in Kona, I said, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it at the headquarters. I want to do it at the best. I want to get the best teachers. I want to get the best training. So I went to Kona. And uh, Kona, you know, when you look at me right now, you're like, man, this guy is so fat and chubby. <laughs> there was a time I was skinny. and 170 ripped tone. There was a time. And it happened in YWAM. And I think a lot of people who like, we're following me and seeing pictures, they're probably like, man, this guy, he, he's, he, he's so vain. You know, he's just trying to lose weight. That is not the case. The reason why I lost so much weight at YWAM is because every single day what you would do is they would make you cook and clean, right? You actually cook for the campus, and then you clean for the campus. And so if you cooked every single day for the campus... And you knew exactly what's in that food, and how they manage their food and how they take care of it. You too would lose a lot of weight. <laughs> you would not want to eat whatever you're making. When I was making it, I was like, I, I don't know, I don't know. How people are not dying from eating our food right now. Every single day, you'll cook and clean. Then you'll go read your scripture and pray. And then after that. You will go out into the community and share the gospel with strangers. We did this every single day for three months. Every single day. Now when it came to go on your mission trip, I I ended up going to Israel. When it came to going on to the mission trip, guess what came easy to us? Cooking, cleaning, sharing the gospel was like second nature. We would tell people about the gospel, and it was easy. When we would help out at the brothels, it was easy to spend hours cooking and cleaning for them and listening to them. When you see these people whose lives were ruined because of drugs, it was easy to counsel them. And tell them about the good news of Jesus. It was because every single person on my team, we did the exact same thing. We cooked. We cleaned. We read our Bibles. We prayed. We went out and shared the good news. We all did that. And so when it came time to do that on the mission field, it was easy. It was easy. It's too late. If you have if you weren't doing that for the last three months, and you go to mission, it's too late to get that. It's too late. It's already too late. If you want to be a Christian, you got to be a Christian. And our last point: not being frightened against the opposition. See, Apostle Paul is telling. The Philippian church, hey, live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel because because by doing so, you will be able to stand firm against the enemy. You will have no fear against the opposition. And what is that fear? That fear is being jailed or possibly killed. See, as a Christian, the greatest threat is taking is taken away from the enemy for us. The greatest threat for a Christian or for anyone is death. But as a Christian who believes in resurrection glory, death has lost its sting. If you noticed in the New Testament, whenever the Christians would talk about death, that word almost doesn't exist is replaced by another word. If you haven't noticed, they use another word to describe death. They simply call it sleep. For them, they understood death for a Christian is simply like a sleep. And just like when you sleep, you wake up knowing with peace in your mind that you'll wake up the next day. And as Christians, you know you'll wake up with peace the loving arms of God. When Apostle Paul says earlier in Philippians, to die is to gain, when we read that, we're like, ooh, yeah. I will spiritually die so I can gain. You know, I will will become humble so I can become more like Christ. No, no, no. When Apostle Paul says to die is gain in Philippians earlier, chapter 1, when writing this letter to them, He's not talking about a metaphorical death. He is talking about a literal, physical death. He was worried, or at least he knew that he had the possibility to be killed in jail. And so he's calling his believers to do the same. Back in seminary, we'll have chapel um, and... uh, we got some really good, really good speakers. There was one chapel, well, there are a lot of chapels, but this one particular one stood out for me when preparing for this message. And I remember at the time, it, it just left such a deep impression to me. They invited a speaker from the Reformed Anglican Church of North America, Uh, And and we're sitting and listening, and he was telling us how the Reformed Anglican Church uh, would have a conference every year. They'll gather the entire Anglican Church around the world, and they would have a big conference. And he said one year in this conference, the Anglican Church of Nigeria, one of the members came to speak. And when he spoke, what he did was, he ended up rebuking the Anglican Church of North America. What did he rebuke them with? He said, he was rebuking the church saying, how could you allow homosexuality to enter into the church? Not only just the church, but in the leadership of the church. How could you allow that? And this person is from Africa, in Nigeria. How insensitive, right? This guy doesn't know anything. And he rebuked him because he said, a decade ago when you guys came to bring the church to Nigeria, my people died because we were fighting witchcraft in the church. That my people, my family members were killed because we're fighting against witchcraft creeping into the Nigerian Anglican church. And now you are here allowing homosexuality to enter into your church. How could you? How could you betray us? How could you betray us? Not being frightened against the opposition. Recently, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. It's a great victory for the church. It's a great victory for countless innocent babies' lives. It's a great victory in our nation. 50 years of Roe v. Wade, killing the innocent. I was happy when I heard the news. My instant reaction was, yes, finally. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. But as I continue to watch certain, you know, social media, just media in general, I realized not everyone is so happy about this decision. See, for me, the pro-choice movement really has gone too far, in my view. Once they stopped, once the fact that the life, that the fetus, if it had life or not, it did not matter to them. That what was more important was the woman's right to choose. They no longer cared if the baby inside the mother's womb actually had life or not. And for me, I think that's when it got to. At least there was a time where that was a battle. It's like you cannot have an abortion if the child or the unborn baby has life. And so they'll think of all these definitions. At least there was a point in time where that was happening. But now disregarding all of that, they don't care. It's up to the last term. They can abort the baby. But was I really surprised? Was I really surprised by that? I mean, if you have people who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, nothing should surprise you in what the world will believe. Nothing. Nothing. Truly, they can believe in anything. But for me, it became, I became really worried when this thought started to creep into the church. See, I was really happy about Roe v. Wade being overturned. But then I started to worry when my fellow Christian brothers and sisters didn't have the same sentiment. And so I spent hours looking for the reasons why this is the case. It came to the point where I actually posted on Instagram. <laughs> and this is what I posted. I said, genuinely, genuinely curious, what are the most convincing pro-abortion, pro-choice arguments? Because I, I just really wanted to know. And I was surprised By the answers mostly because I don't have many friends on Instagram so just getting any responses like well people are reading my my stuff I must be an influencer I don't know along with what have people have said and what I've read and all the media that I have consumed to figure out the answer to this I was actually most surprised because I thought when I posted this, I would have a huge variety of answers. Someone would come and say something that I never thought of and be like, whoa, I never thought about that, good point. Or they said this, I was like, okay, yes, you know, I I just, you know, I thought my horizons would have been widened. But I was surprised because at the end of it, all the arguments actually got distilled into the same argument, one single argument. One reason. And next week, we'll, uh, I'm just joking, I'll tell you now, I'll tell you now. <clears throat> All you guys will come back, oh man, be greatest cliffhanger. At the end, I knew that the people at least who were responding to my Instagram would be Christians because most of my followers or most of the people, you know, most of my friends on Instagram are Christian. And so I'll probably get a small sample of what Christians think and how could a Christian, because I thought, you know, the line was cut clear and dry on this issue, but how could even a Christian right, think it's okay, right, to be pro-choice and why they are so upset about Roe v. Wade being overturned. I probably won't do it justice, but essentially their argument is constrained to this. It's about 50-50 of people feeling positive about Roe v. Wade being overturned. A lot of Christians were very happy about that. Even those who responded to me and even the things I've read online, they're actually happy about Roe v. Wade being overturned because they understood that a life is now being preserved, saved. But where all of them pretty much agree is because Roe v. Wade being overturned, what that's going to end up doing is create immense pressure Amongst those who cannot support the child. I didn't say this, but from my readings, specifically African Americans. Single mothers, African Americans. These are the people who will be the most affected by this ruling. For them, it's already hard enough to sustain themselves with multiple jobs. Throw a child in the mix, it'll be just that much more difficult. Some of them went as far as to say, then the child's life, you know, the quality of their life would be terrible. And, you know, you don't want them to enter into this life because how terrible it'll most likely be. And the cycle will continue. The cycle will continue. Anyone who has a child now knows how difficult it is to raise a child. But a lot of us are in a place where we can take care of a child. That's not the difficult thing for us. So hearing all these people responding, naturally, I started to develop empathy. Understanding the reason why something like this, something that I think is so great, Why for them, it would, it's not, the sentiment is not shared. Because they understand the repercussions of it would lead to probably more poverty, more stress, lower quality of life. So I had to ask that burning question that I had at least I I read all the comments. Like, for me, I was genuinely curious. I was not trying to argue. I'm not trying to debate. But I really wanted to know what is the best. I want to give me the best. Give me the best shot, what you got, of why, you know, why I should not be happy about Roe v. Wade being overturned. But even after all these responses, I had this burning, lingering question that I had to ask. I just had to ask. How do you reconcile the fact that you are killing an innocent life in order to preserve the life of another, of the mother's life. That's essentially what you're trying. Not just their, their life, but the quality of their life. You're willing to take away the life of an innocent child in order to somewhat preserve the quality of life of another. That was a burning question I had because for me, I felt empathetic. I understand that is the repercussion that exactly, probably, most likely will happen, all the things that they said. See, when I hear that, my first response is not, oh, man, we should, you know, bring back Roe v. Wade. My response is, as a Christian, or at least my Christian spirit saying, is, man, there's still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot more work to do that this may just be the beginning. You know, so I'm so encouraged when I hear stories like Ava Michelle adopting a child. You know, I'm, I, I, you know, for me, I just think, man, there's just so much more work to do. My first thought is not, man, boo, like why Roe v. Wade? My first thought is, man, there's just so much more we need to do as a church. So I asked them, okay, how do you reconcile that? How in your conscience, do you have peace with that? I won't do it justice, but basically, some of the responses and even the things I've read online boil down to lesser of two evils. Lesser of two evils. It's a lesser of two evils. It's better for them in their minds to kill this innocent child because it is worse to take away the quality of life of this mother. Yeah, my heart broke. When I I found out that's like the general response, my heart broke. It really did break. It really did break. I want to put a disclaimer here because we do live in a world where nothing is perfect. And I also want to say that if you yourself have struggled with this, or even perhaps had an abortion yourself, that there is no condemnation in Christ. Truly, there is not gospel the holy spirit can really really reconcile everything can really reconcile even the worst deeds anything that we have done through the gospel we can find peace with god but in that moment when i heard that response my heart broke my heart broke i felt like the priorities for some reason hmm did not align with what I believe Scripture says. Next week, we'll be going over the suffering of Christ and how that affects our suffering. But for today, uh, we'll end it here. Let me pray for us. Father, you are an amazing God, and you are the giver of life. So, Father, we ask... Yeah, we are in deep need of your help, that we are far from perfect, that even something as monumental as Roe v. Wade being overturned, because of the fallenness of the world, the depravity is so great, that even that simply means there's more work to be done. Father, be with us all. Give us the wisdom that you grant us through your word we ask, give us hearts of flesh that will receive it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
1: Amen. As we have heard uh, in the sermon this morning, one of the joys that we experience as Christians is for us to strive together in face of opposition and difficulty. And and God has given us the means of communing through the elements in the supper. It's a way for us to recognize that we belong to each other as a body of Christ, as we are also together united to our Savior. And so it's a great delight for us as Christians when we're able to take these elements in faith, trusting that it's not just mere representation of just bread and wine, and that's all there is, but it comes with the promise that surely our Lord is with us always. That in the very ordinary thing of eating and drinking these elements, there's the spiritual reality of how God is strengthening us and increasing our faith, that we can rejoice in Him more and live a life that is pleasing to Him. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God had promised that He would deliver them out of Egypt through a series of signs which we know as the Ten Plagues of Egypt. And there's a uniqueness to that tenth plague, different to the nine plagues before. In many of those nine plagues, God had differentiated between the land of Goshen, where the Israelites dwelt, and the rest of Egypt. For example, uh, when God inflicted a disease that would kill much of the livestock in Egypt, only those in Goshen were spared, because that's where the Israelites dwelt. When a fiery hell uh, fell from the sky to destroy much of the crop and whatever other livestock were left alive only those in Goshen were spared. And even when there was sudden deep darkness,